And good afternoon and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr. Andy Matheson. So uh, going to be running through a few papers as usual and just some bits that have caught my interest. So the first one was another one of the biobank studies, this huge cohort where lots and lots of data is kind of just slowly uh, dribbling out into very publishable uh, papers. This one was about poor sleep and mortality risk, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and poor sleep. And I think we'd all feel pretty confident in saying that now we understand that for whatever reasons, uh, poor sleep is linked to increased mortality. Um, whether or not you are uh, someone that then starts to sort of look into, okay, why that might is. And um, we talked a little bit about that in, in the past, how it's almost becoming a sort of slightly separate uh, branch of, uh, uh, of medicine in its own, this, this idea that you're following your body's natural rhythms and using medications to get back into your body's own natural rhythms will reduce a lot of these uh, pathways that seem to be linked with, with aging and death. Now, this study was in the BMJ, it was called Sleep and Physical Activity in Relation to All-Cause Cardiovascular Disease and, and Cancer Mortality Risk. First of her author, Huang, last author, Staminacitis. Um, and it was from a group in Sydney, uh, and they were actually looking at with sleep. Yep, fine, that 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 will be linked to it. But does physical activity have a significant impact on it? Uh, and essentially, I, I, I've, they found that people with low physical activity seem to have an even higher risk. But interestingly enough, I think reading into the paper, sleep is was more important than physical activity. Um, now, obviously, the, the big thing for both those is how do you pull out those different different confounders? Um, and, and we all know that, yes, uh, physical activity is linked with improved uh, mortality, but how does that work? Is that, as with sleep, there, there seem to be a pretty uh, reasonable uh, mechanism for it? Or is, is it because actually it's linked to a lot of other changes in people's lifestyle? Um, so decent uh, biobank, so lots of people in it. Eleven year follow up, but not not sure it's going to change much. Much I'm doing. Uh, the next one uh, was a study about weekend warriors, and it was in the uh, JAMA Internal Medicine. And I'll just grab it up, and it was. Uh, association of the weekend warrior and other leisure time physical activity patterns with all cause and cause specific mortality. Now, for, so for us, this was the, the question of in people that do moderate amounts of physical activity, so this really isn't really our athletes, but maybe our, our older athletes, is there a, a better way of doing it? Should you be doing more at the weekends or actually should it be spaced evenly throughout? And a large cohort study and didn't really find anything, um, just that uh, more activity is better. Ten-year follow-up, no difference in mortality. Um, so reassuring that, that the actual particular pattern that you, your athletes might be going for isn't the be-all and end-all. And clearly there's lots of other things going and, and just the fact that people are uh, doing moderate to vigorous activity uh, is the important thing. So the next study we looked at was another high-fat, high-carb one. I'll just grab that up. 
So as always with these studies, it's sometimes a bit difficult to uh, sort of tease out the, the author beliefs and um, uh, they're all small studies. This one again, just seven athletes, only over six weeks, low carbohydrate versus moderate carbohydrate. Um, and they were really sort of arguing that they were demonstrating metabolic flexibility because there was sort of an increase in fat oxidation, um, especially for the high VO2 athletes. Um, but again, I think it's just one of those things showing that humans are remarkably adaptive uh, and over six weeks with such a low number, you're going to see uh, some people adapting. I'll dig out the um, reference for that and put it on the Facebook page. So the next one was now just about overreaching and low energy availability. So this was trying to see if they could merge together these ideas of low energy availability and overreaching and say actually with overreaching rather than it purely just being a lack of recovery time is, is a common unrecognized cause that uh, there's low energy availability there. And it, it, reading through it felt that the, maybe they were kind of just stretching um, out and trying to, to, to look um, a little too hard for, for sort of more things that LEA can be involved in. Uh, Meta-analysis looking at 56 studies uh, and they didn't really find um, anything particularly helpful. So I think in my head still very comfortable holding those two as uh, circles that cross but, but very different. Um, so overreaching and low energy availability obviously there's going to be a lot of crossover and what's going on there um, but you can't just use LEA as a marker for overreaching and uh, it comes back to the fact that this is complex stuff you need to be talking to the coaches talking to the athletes and looking at what they're eating uh, the next study uh, was about IL-6 and hepcidin, and again, it was more from the Burke group. Um, it was called sequential submaximal training in elite male rowers does not result in amplified increases in IL-6 or hepcidin. Now, I'm a huge amount of admiration for this group, and, and they, their papers constantly leave me reading, uh, reading around and trying to learn a bit more about what they're exactly doing. Now, in this, they were, they're still looking at the kind of these immune responses to different training sessions and what may have an effect on it. And really, here they're looking at iron. And they, they took 16 athletes and they used calcium as an iron inhibitor to try and see if athletes that they gave the calcium to before training had a higher response with the, the IL-6 or hepcidin. Now, um, they didn't find uh, any change in the IL-6, um, but they essentially concluded saying this this needs further investigation. And again, it's one of these studies where I don't think it's going to change anything I do, but it's, it's useful to see that someone's actually starting to tease out what's going on here. What is this interaction? How do these different things interact with uh, the immune system um, and the inflammatory response in what could what different things that may be impacting it um, so essentially they're just going to at the moment say yeah continue with taking iron as uh, as required and as is sensible um, but they're, they're working very hard towards something that I'm sure will be, be fascinating and practice changing in the end
The uh, next article was on uh, intermittent fasting, and uh, this was quite a selfish one. This was me trying to figure out, because uh, I've moved on to a, a 16-8 fast, just to see if that helps with my back pain and helps keep me slim. How can I get myself stacked if I'm doing that? Uh, I thought I'd just share with you. I found the, the most useful article I found on it was called The Effects of Intermittent Fasting Combined with Resistance Training on Lean Body Mass, a Systematic Review of Human Studies. Uh, first off, so Keenan, last off with Abelski, and it was in Nutrients, published in 2020. Uh, and I enjoyed it. It was a nice, nice little run through, essentially re- summarizing uh, the sort of slightly scanty data and saying that there's no reason why you should lose lean body mass um, when you are uh, doing intermittent fasting. Uh, however, the, the key thing I want to know is: is there a way we can? I can manage my protein intake during fasting to help myself get big. Um, and I didn't get the answer to that. Uh, and I'm still looking and, and will always appreciate any anything pinged over the uh, Facebook site um, if anyone knows any better than me. Right, and the next paper was in the uh, BJSM. It was called UEFA Expert Group Statement on Nutrition Elite Football, Current Evidence to Inform Practical Recommendations and Guide Future Research. So uh, I have to, I mean, one of these ones that we've all got to read, especially if we work with any footballers, um, just so we can get an idea of where, what is the gold standard at the moment and a huge long list of authors and everyone that you'd expect to be there in there. Um, although I didn't see um, James Morton in there, which I thought I thought was interesting, um, especially given doing so much on female football at the moment. Um, it, nothing particularly helpful in there. Nothing that we you wouldn't have sort of covered yourself already. Uh, use of carbohydrates, match day, pre-match day. Not much. Uh, very exciting. Not much really making me sort of challenging any thoughts on uh, kind of reducing uh, carbohydrate requirements, particularly when not doing high training loads and mostly doing recovery. Uh, I think the the found I, I fo- the bit I focused on most was actually one was the bit on iron. Just having read the the Burke stuff and and seen how complex some of the sort of interactions between that and in, in the training adaptations are, and and seeing how people work it through. Uh, just such a big gap between that and the recommendations that were made on um, iron in these rec- in these guidelines, which could, could, could have been taken out of any old textbook essentially um, didn't add anything for me um, and didn't bring in anything that's been been going on Um, so uh, not that surprising but uh, it's definitely an area where we we feel we understand more than we do it's it's a bit yeah you can long list of things where um, we're probably uh, assuming far more. In the next bit on that, it was again was the same. I mean, the calcium bit was pretty disappointing. Um, they they added a bit on options, added a bit on bits in the heat. Nothing about the impact of, for example, calcium on iron, and in nothing about the impact of uh, calcium on uh, your actual health. Um, so. And what do I mean about that? Uh, well, I suppose as, as doctors, we're sort of um, used to talking about the cardiovascular impact, the mortality increase, um, but but nothing in there about it. And people that we might be recommending take it for a prolonged period. Um, 
it prompted me to have a little look to see if I can find something that's got a good review on calcium and just sort of summarises that where are the concerns, where are we confident that we, we do need to be using it. And I came this, uh, across this quite nice summary article. Uh, it was called The Good, the Bad and the Ugly of Calcium Supplementation, a review of calcium intake on human health. First author Li, last author Hong Wendang. Um, and I, I really like the way it just broke it out, went a bit through the uh, sort of calcium mechanisms, split it into the different patient types, such as children and children in different societies, then the bit about the cardiovascular disease implications, the GI disease implications, kidneys, kidney stones, these sort of adverse effects, uh, and how, where the evidence is, is on all that. So just again, something I think if we're going to be making recommendations to our athletes, um, and a bit disappointing this isn't in the guidelines if you're going to make recommendations there must be the good and the bad because we're having to uh, give informed consent to people before we give them stuff rather than just say well it's in the guideline and they say it's good Right, uh, the next one I was going on to was uh, just uh, an interesting one from Morton, just talking about carbohydrate fear, and this was focusing more on elite female soccer players. Obviously, uh, elite female soccer very much in the news with a sort of fantastic win at the weekend. So this was carbohydrate fear, skin fold targets, body image issues, a qualitative analysis of player and stakeholder perceptions of the nutrition culture within elite female soccer. And it was in the Science of Medicine Football, 22 July, and it was the, the Morton Group with Kirstie Elliott Sale in as an author as well. And uh, essentially... Um, it was just talking about the fact that there seems to be much more of a, a carb fear, is the, the phrase they use, within football and the impacts that that might have on injury rates. And if you're going to be doing hard work, if you're going to be trying to recover in time for, Nick, for sort of quick matches in a row, actually you need to be getting the correct fueling in and you do need to cut the carbohydrates. Um, it also prompted me just to remind myself a bit about some of the stuff that group's been doing on females sort of elite soccer. And one was that energy evadability, um, double labeled water investigation, um, just looking at actually what is the um, energy expenditure. Uh, and the other one was the, um, the fueling recommendations, the fueling the female athlete carbohydrate and protein recommendations in the European Journal of Sports Science. Uh, so all the sort of two very key papers, I think, that if you're working in that area, probably need to be um, printed out and ones that you've got uh, highlighted and, and pop to read regularly. The last one today was uh, something we've just been talking about regularly and, and just that idea of protein and sport and, and what what alternative options there are that might be more sustainable uh, so we've discussed it before about the sort of options of insect food and I, I'd mentioned about trying to find struggling to find uh, good data on hemp protein so it was really nice to see this in the frontiers in nutrition uh, protein and sports alternative sources and strategies for bioactive and sustainable sports nutrition first author Lopez Martinez last author Garces Rimon um, and really enjoyed it all uh, the only negative was, I mean, there was a lot about uh, mycoproteins, um, uh, a lot about insects, not much on hemp. I'm still looking for that that one that will tell me if what I'm doing is, is right. Um, a little bit there that I didn't quite feel they got 
right or, or again oversimplified was the uh, a bit about other negative impacts of high protein on gut flora and there's just so many confounding factors and that's one where i feel most of the data on that comes from people using sweetened protein shakes which clearly if you're adding in a sweetener and that's going to be an immediate confounder and people that take protein shakes what else are they having how much real food are they managing how much prebiotic food are they having are they likely to have probiotics etc etc um so wasn't wasn't too sure about that and and the other bit i was a bit disappointed was it didn't touch on something we've, we've talked through in the past is the the use of um uh, yes, there's, there's alternative ways of getting protein, but let's improve the absorption of protein uh, and the data that's trickling out slowly on humans um, on improving protein absorption using probiotics and changing our microbiome. And again, one, I can understand why there's not more of this, because there's so much in the farming literature and the animal and farming literature. Guys who own pigs and, and cows get it, and they're already all over it uh, as, a, uh, as a way to kind of keep, keep organic food but improve protein absorption. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have moved into the, uh, the human world and the performance sport world yet. So um, some really interesting stuff there. I hope you're having a fantastic few weeks and managing to get plenty of training done. And I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye.